Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. I know that uh, you're aware of what happened last week or a little more than a week ago with the Silicon Valley Bank down in the States. And then uh, you've probably heard something about uh, Credit Suisse Group on the weekend. Well, this led to uh, this morning, very early this morning, before our stock markets opened, other overseas stock markets in Asia and elsewhere, some volatile trading on bank stocks. Now, things settled down by the end of the day, but the concern was, are we seeing the beginning of a whole bunch of problems with banks? And as I said off the top, um, Canadian banks are pretty darn stable and pretty darn safe. But if there are problems with banks, it's not just us that has affected the broader economy. Are we seeing something here that should be concerning or is this something that is a little blip and is now covered and on we go without worries? Uh, I know a person who can answer that question for us. He is with the DeGroote School of Business. He is a person we turn to for topics like this and others to do with the economy and finances. His name is Marvin Ryder, who joins us now. Sir, how are you? I'm just great, thank you. Excellent. So, yes, yeah, so the, the, the overseas markets this morning went a little bit haywire for a little while yep. on what was happening with banks. Everything seemed to stabilize by the end of the day, which I assume means they were satisfied that things are not going to in, go into a meltdown phase here. But how concerned should we be about banks? Not necessarily in Canada, because I think ours are pretty pretty safe, but how concerned should we be that what we're seeing is something bigger than a bank or two having problems? Well, Scott, it's, it's like saying that I saw two different car crashes today. I wonder if all the cars in the world are falling apart. Okay. It, it's a, a question of timing here, and my key question is, is there any linkage between these? So Silicon Valley Bank, it was the 16th largest bank in the United States, 16th largest bank in the United States. The United States has decided to go for a regional model rather than having national banks like we do in Canada. And the downside to that model is that a regional bank gets tied heavily to the success or failure of that region. So you can imagine many Texas banks are tied to oil. Many banks in Kansas are tied to agriculture. And in Silicon Valley, they were tied to the fortunes of the high-tech sector. The high-tech sector was doing really well two years ago in 2021 as we were all pivoting due to COVID. But now that COVID is starting to appear in the rearview mirror, we're pivoting back to the way we behaved before. And every one of these major tech companies have been reporting problems, and therefore it puts Silicon Valley at risk. Now, I'll be candid. Silicon Valley should have known this in 2022, but decided to take no action and no action and no action. And then finally, at the last minute in 2023, said maybe we should rebalance our portfolio, but guess what? Too late. And we had a run on the bank, and the bank uh, had, a, had a collapse. Now, Credit Suisse is a completely different kind of story. Although it's a big bank, and it's in Switzerland, and it's a global bank, primarily dealing with government agencies and businesses and high net worth individuals, it has had 15 years of the worst management you can possibly imagine. Scandal after scandal after scandal. For instance, uh, they misstated great, you know, billions of dollars worth of of uh, a stock that they were supposedly holding so that executives could get a better bonus. They were money laundering. I'm going to tell you it was a Bulgarian cocaine cartel. They helped a government official in Mozambique to get loans, which then that person absconded with, stole the money. Last year, 
their credit, their uh, customer list got leaked to the public, and when we took a look at it, we went, my God, these are terribly nefarious individuals. What are you doing business with them? And each one of these over the last 15 years led to five or six employees being terminated and a promise that we'll do better. But guess what? A year later, they made another boo-boo and more people were let go. So honestly, I had been expecting something to happen at Credit Suisse maybe in 2022. Could have happened four months ago could have happened four months from now. It's the timing that's unfortunate. It happens to be happening at the same time as we had the Silicon Valley Bank problem, but the two of them are completely unrelated. And what happened Friday when the the spit hit the fan, so to speak, uh, the government of Switzerland said, look, there are three things you think of Switzerland for, chocolate, the Alps, and banking. And we can't have one of our cornerstone banks in trouble. So they called up UBS, the United Bank of Switzerland, and said, we want you to take it over, and we'll move heaven and earth for you. It's the fastest merger I've seen in my life. Uh, UBS had no intention Friday morning of buying this bank. And by today, 48 hours later, they own it. Uh, they bought the bank for $2 billion, but the government of Switzerland gave them a line of credit for $100 billion. Why? Because they said, we know you haven't had any chance to check out the books, see what you're buying. You're basically buying a pig and a poke. So we're prepared to put this big line of credit out there for you. Mm. Whatever you find, we'll take care of it. Just make the problem go away, because we don't want banking to be tarnished in Switzerland. So it's, it's just unfortunate, the timing, but I see them as completely unrelated and certainly not a sign that the world's economies are melting. And I trust exactly what you say, and you make a ton of sense when you say this. My question would be then, why was there so much volatility today? Because some people must have put the two together, and I would assume intelligent people who had concerns about this until they saw something later that appeased there or or made them believe that these two weren't the same. I mean, you're, you're pointing to one thing. The traders, the people who invest, were clearly thinking something different. Well, sort of. So uh, another great truism about the stock markets is that the market overreacts to bad news and underreacts to good news. And the, the fear, and this is, this is, uh, there's a whole series of actions that have happened over the last week, is all about the word fear. Uh, banks can usually predict how much cash they need on a day-to-day basis. Now, here's another truism of banking. I put my paycheck in there today, but the bank turns around and lends that money out. Sometimes they lend it for 25 years on a mortgage, five years on a car loan, or even 30 days on a credit card. So if I suddenly turn up tomorrow and say I want all of my money back, they don't have all of the money for all of their depositors just sitting there because they've turned around and loaned it out. So banks can predict very accurately how much cash they need on a day-to-day basis, and that works brilliantly unless there is what we call a run on a bank. Suddenly fear materializes, and this is what happened with Silicon Valley. People show up and say, I want my money back. Well, we've run out of money. What do you mean you've run out of money? Well, we have it. We just don't have it in liquid cash. So over the last week, we've seen first in Canada, the office of the superintendent of financial institutions, who normally checks on how the liquidity is doing of the major banks. About once a week, they said, we're going to call you every day. And we want to make sure you're in perfect liquid circumstance. And if there's any sign of a run anywhere, we want to know about it. And then uh, yesterday, uh, oh, about 24 hours ago at this time, in fact, 
the major central banks of the world, so whether the Federal Reserve Board, the Bank of Canada, the Bank of England, Bank of Japan, they all agreed that they would call each other on a daily basis just to make sure that there's no runs going on, that everyone's liquid, that the cash is flowing through, and they even agreed that if something did materialize, we'll backstop you just to make sure nothing gets out of control because fear is a big motivator. And this is sort of what happened this morning. People who couldn't contextualize what happened assumed the worst, where they were fearful, and they acted on fear rather than logic. Eventually, however, logic wins out. And I think that's why the market calmed down as the day went by. One more thing, and that is last week when this was all going on, uh, Christian Freeland, our finance minister, said, our banks are fine here in Canada. Don't worry about it. And a lot of people said, oh, that was, that's good to hear. And other people said, well, wait, no one said anything about our bank. Should we now be worried? <laughs> is, is, can you sometimes create fear by speaking about something that you don't really necessarily need to speak on? And I'm not taking a shot at Christian Freeland. I honestly no, I don't know the answer here. If she created fear by talking about something that no one was thinking about. Yeah, no, I, I understand what you're saying. So she was trying to issue a message of reassurance, and people said, well, why are you reassuring me? Maybe there is something I need yeah. to worry about. It's kind of like when the police say, nothing to see here, folks, just move along. You go, well, well, why are you here then if there's nothing to see? Maybe there is something to see. So, yeah, the, this is always a danger, and time is the great healer of these things. If we can get a week or two or three, and we don't have another rumor of a bank in trouble somewhere, somewhere in this world, then we're going to forget about it. Um, just to give you a sense of it again, Scott, I take you back to this time three years ago, 2020. It was three years ago at this time that we were declaring a pandemic and ordering people to work from home and shuttering businesses. And the same office I talked about, the Office of the Superintendent of Financial Institutions, said we'd better check on the banks because maybe people are going to get fearful because of COVID, and maybe they're all going to walk into their banks and want to get briefcases full of cash and put it in their bomb shelter, and who knows what they're going to do. Now, nothing came of it, but it was prudent for them to up the vigilance level during that time period. And so, yes, we're all being a little more vigilant just in case, but there, there really isn't, I think, anything for us to worry about. And the big difference, again, is the difference in the banking systems. Canada has gone with this national approach to banking. So if I'm the Bank of Montreal and I have some investments in Alberta and Alberta's going in the wrong direction, I am diversified because I have money in Ontario and Quebec and Newfoundland, and one offsets the other. But in the United States, they've gone for this regional banking mo uh, model, which then makes them more susceptible to regional variations, and they, can't, they don't diversify away some of that risk. So, you know, I always like to remind people, where's the problem? Who, what kind of bank is it? What's going on there? You see, we don't have that here. So I, I think time is going to be our best friend here. And pretty soon, by the way, later this week, we're going to have a provincial budget. And then the week after, we're going to have a federal budget. There's going to be so many other things to worry about. You'll forget all about these banking problems. Marvin Ryder from the DeGroote School of Business. Thank you as always. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. First day of spring. Just... A cheery, upbeat, actually is nice out there, but a cheery, upbeat, I mean, Don Robertson came in like singing. He was skipping his way up the steps as he came into the studio today. He just like was the bluebird of happiness. Welcome to the show. Yeah, I've never been introduced as the blue bird of happiness. <laughs> it's still a little chilly, but it was a pretty, pretty nice day. I'll tell you how good my day was today, Don. Last week, uh, my wife got a... 
note. It was for me, but she opened the envelope and that's fine. We allow that in our household. Um, and it told me that my late mother who passed away in August had been part of, and I didn't know anything about this, part of a class action that had been successful and we would be receiving our check soon to follow. And I was like, woohoo, you know, windfall, bring it on. Like, I don't know what the class action was. I still don't. Um, but we got bills that we could pay. We got stuff we could do with a few, you know, 25, 30, $40,000. I don't know what, how much she was getting it for. Uh, the check arrived today. Did you get, be able to buy a hat with it? $73. <laughs> this is the stupidest class action in history. I wonder what the lawyers got. Uh, yeah, they had me. I was, I was excited for this <laughs> thinking, what am I about to score? I, and as I say, I still have no idea what it's for. So you weren't you weren't ecstatic that your mother had stood up for some wrong and fought the good fight? Well, and... sure I was. I'm glad that she did that, <laughs> but I would have liked to have thought that, and first of all, I wish she was still here to got it herself, but if she yes. had been, I would have hoped that it would have been thousands of dollars for her. You know, it seems like a lot of work to go to become part of a class action for $73. Wow. Yeah, that... <laughs> It'll be interesting to find out what it was all about. Well, I don't know if I will. I, I assume maybe something else will follow. I'll probably be taxed on that too. I don't know. Do you get taxed on the in the I've, winnings from a class action? I'll be seventy-two dollars in tax coming. Yeah. So you know, <laughs> you'll owe the government money. Yeah, I probably will. Yeah, it'll be. Uh, who knew that uh, gains taxes on class action lawsuits were actually at one hundred and thirty percent. <laughs> wouldn't surprise me at all if, uh, you know, if that was the case. Anyway, yeah, maybe we shouldn't spend it. No. <laughs> maybe we shouldn't. Uh, invest it. Yeah, invest it. I'll invest it into a, a restaurant and I'll get an appetizer and, uh, <laughs> and a salad. And yeah, anyway, there's, uh, that was my good news for the day almost. <laughs> so now I'm, now I'm, now I'm at the point on where I'm just holding out hope that somehow I am related in some way to Elon Musk or Bill Gates. That's all I can hope for at this point. Wow. It's the last shot. Yeah. That maybe Bill Gates. Do you want to be related to him then? When he passes away. Not till then. Not particularly, <laughs> but when the estate gets divided up, yes, I would very much like to be related to It'll him. It'll be interesting that if, if Trump buys Twitter and a couple more deals like that, there may not be a lot left. Yeah, well, we'll you know what we'll uh, we'll we'll see, but I'm I'm not anticipating. I think this seventy three dollars was my big uh, <laughs> my big windfall. And and here's the other one is I've only ever once that I can that I know of because I don't buy lottery tickets. Only once have I ever won something like that. So years ago, at an old workplace, they started one of those office lottery pool things where you put in five bucks a week or whatever, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And it was for, I think it was, I think it was Lotter 649 or something. Anyway, um, one week we hit five of the six numbers and there were about 10 of us in this group. And I was like, oh man, five of the six numbers. Like, again, it's gotta be thousands of dollars. You hit five of the six numbers. I think I got $105. Or something like that. Like it was, some, and, at the, and at that point I said, I'm never hitting six of the six. <laughs> if five of the six only got me this much money, I'm out. Like I'm never going to. So yeah, I never, I don't think I've bought a lottery ticket since. And that's probably been 25 years. So you're probably ahead financially. Oh, I'm a hundred percent ahead financially. Yeah. 
hundred percent. Uh, you know, good for the people who win the lottery. Um, again, that story from a month or two ago about that girl, that 18 year old, I think, or 19 year old in Sudbury yeah. or Sault Ste. Marie or wherever it was, uh, that only further solidifies my thinking of not buying a ticket. Cause she goes in and she wins it on her first ever ticket. That, you know, that's. I didn't read that. That's, that's not bad odds. First ever What'd ticket. What'd she win? Oh, millions, like 15 or $18 million. Like it was extraordinary what she won. And, you know, I, I'd be the guy who would play it for 60 years and finally I'd win, you know, an, a new, an extra ticket. I mean, I never even won the, I never even won the, um, the roll up the rim. You know, I, all I ever won was the chance to play again, which is, you know, not exactly what I was going for, but. Wow. You know, this yeah. A, this is a great room. Yeah. If you're, if you're looking to have <laughs> financial good luck rub off, you're in the wrong place. This is depressing. You're in the wrong place. All right. Speaking of financial good luck. There is a new, I'm doing air quotes, fighting league that Dana White has become part of, the guy who's behind the UFC, he's the president of the UFC. Um, slap fighting. Have you seen any, have you ever seen slap fighting? I, on Twitter, I yes, saw okay. a little slap fighting. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. You think this is going to catch on and be a big new thing? I think if my wife Sue's had her way, she would practice every <laughs> night when I come home. Yeah, well, it could be. And she could be a champion, I'm sure. Um, I think it's silly. Um, they had a little bit of it on there about six months ago, a bit of an exhibition on it, too, I saw a highlight of. And it's it depends on how they're doing it. I mean, if you're... Hitting a guy with your, an open hand is one thing, but if you're hitting him with the palm, it could be like a fist. So I don't know if it's more like slap, 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 or guys are drilling each other. Well, it's supposed to be open hand, which you're right. If you hit him with an open hand so that it's a belly flop on the top of water, yep, that stings, but so be it. But if you lead, as you say, with the heel of your hand... Yep. on the jaw or the ear, which is what these guys, I mean, look, this is like so many other things. First of all, we should back up. If anyone hasn't seen this, go on social media if you really want to. Uh, what it is, it is two guys facing each other and one guy gets to wind up and literally slap the snot out of the other guy. And then if the other guy is still standing and hasn't been knocked out cold or had his one eardrum shoot out the other ear hole... <laughs> He gets to take a turn slapping back and you go until one guy basically can't continue. And it, to me, it's not sporting. Like UFC, whether you like UFC fighting or not, at least it's sporting. You each have an equal chance at... Killing the other guy. Well, yeah, but you know, but you're all, you're, this one, this is to me like a high school dare that, and, yeah. and, and to your point about whether you hit with the palm of your hand or the heel of your hand, like everything else, Don, this thing starts out probably as a dare well, and then, you know, guys work at it and they study it and they figure out what's going to do the most damage. And now you've got guys just wailing on people. Well, it would deteriorate to the, to the, uh, uh, the firm part of the hand very quickly, right? Like if I slapped you a couple of times, nothing happened. I go, I'm going to move them this time. It would be, uh, it's. 
I guess it's a long way from walking up and slapping a guy with a glove and challenging him to a duel. Well, that that'll I'm sure that's next on the list. <laughs> the duel. <laughs> Let's bring back the duel. Again, I, I have no issue with MMA, with UFC, or with boxing. I know some people say it's damaging and you know, we can have that discussion. I'm not talking about whether it's concussive and all those things. That's not what I'm saying. I'm talking as a sporting activity. I have no problem because it's two people who have chosen to get in there and have an equal chance. But this just seems like there is no sport involved. It's just, but I don't know what it is. The When you describe MMA and boxing and everything else, you both put your hands up and it's, a, it's you know, you start well, you can defend yourself. Well, you can start fighting. You can protect yourself. Yeah. This other one, you just got to stand there and take it. And you can't flinch. You How many swings do you get? I don't even know if there's a number. I think it's got to be a limit. You can't just stand there and take it for an hour. Well, you, you alternate. And I think it's until the one guy can't or one, and they have women's as well. Uh, and like what really is amazing to me is it seems as though the one positive here, if there is, it seems as though that as it's become a little more organized, they've at least gone into weight classes because in the past. Because <laughs> that's the civilized thing to do. Well, in the past, in the early days of this, when you would see this early on social media, you would have a 380 pound Russian guy fighting against, you know, some young, you know, teenager looked like who was struggling with weight loss. And it was like, you're going to, you are going to kill this guy. You're going to rip his head right off. And well, so. Well, you know what though? If, if, if that were, if that was the matchup, the little guy really hasn't got much to lose because if he's dumb enough to go in there and stand there, how, how I mean, how dumb can you get? Oh, there were a couple that Maybe like, he would slap him silly. I, there were a couple there smarter. that I saw where, honestly, it looked like the one guy was a golf club, the driver, and the other guy was the ball on the tee. <laughs> And it was just like, you're not, what, what are you doing? What, what, what is possibly possessing you to stand there and let this guy just, I know it may not be considered manly to say, I'll take a timeout. I'm going to lose by forfeit here, but I don't know that I need to have, as I say, my one ear inside my other ear. <laughs> and that's what it was. I, I just, I'm amazed that I'm amazed, quite frankly, Dana White has got into this and seems to be, as best I can tell, and seems to be quite enthusiastic about this thing. I just don't get it. I just don't get that people are going to be wanting to watch this for more than Dana, one or two slaps as a, as a, oh, it's, oh, okay, that's that. I don't need to see that anymore. Yeah, but Dana White's a promoter, P.T. Barnum. I mean, if he can come up with something and somebody can convince them that they can get an audience to watch something and pay to watch something, that's the business they're in. Ed McMahon's been doing it with your WWF slash WWE for a long time. Yeah. I, uh, you got to find it entertaining. I don't think I would even spend a portion of your clash action inheritance to watch. There, as I say to me, all right, let me tell you a story. So years ago when UFC was getting, was really starting to build up speed and build up steam and become a thing. Uh, Jeff Joslin is a guy from town. His, yep. He runs Joslin's gym. He fought in the UFC at one time in San Diego. And uh, he knows what he's doing. And anyway, I, I, I was watching a fight with him one time on TV. And he is 
t- saying, okay, this is going to happen and this is going to happen and this is going to happen. And everything that he said happened because you can see that the one guy is doing this to set this up to go for this move or whatever else. And what I got out of that is this isn't just two morons getting into a cage, having a tough man competition. There's a strategy involved. There's a, ch- it's physical, no question, but there is a chess match as well. There's strategy in what you're doing. It's not just, I'm going to go in there and we are just going to wail on each other as hard as we can with nothing. That, that's what this is though. This is just getting in there and wailing on a guy with no strategy except hit as hard as you possibly can. And I don't, I just don't get it. I don't, I don't, I, as I say, I've seen it, um, but I would have less than zero desire to go and watch this in person. Well, I want to get a live sample of it. So why don't, why don't you and Ben try it out? Ben is busy trying to balance an egg in the other side of the room. It's got to be, we got to be delicate today. (laughs) Today is the vernal equinox, first day of spring, which is supposed to, because of the equidistance of the moon and the sun to the earth, or that's not true. Sun up at 7. The moon and the sun are not equidistant. Anyway, you're supposed to be able to, according to a theory, balance an egg on its end on this day. So Ben has been working on it and apparently he succeeded. I don't know if he's trying it again to see if it was a fluke, but anyway. Um, so no, there will be no slap fighting in the studio today, but, uh. This time. This time. Yeah. Ben says this time. Yes. What? Oh, no, sorry. I thought you were going to say something. So no, I, 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 I will not be at any point that I can imagine buying a ticket for slap fighting. Now, if there is someone from Hamilton who is getting into the slap fighting game, I'll write about them. But the first question I'll ask is, are are you completely out of your flipping mind? (laughs) Because it just (laughs) seems like, I can't think of. He may slap you. You better do it over the phone. Well, you know what this seems like to me? This would be the equivalent of being a 90 meter ski jumper, like Horst Bulow back in the day, or Matty Nukinen. Eddie the Eagle. Or Eddie the Eagle, only... The skis for this particular event, as soon as you leave the jump, they can disengage from your feet. So you have to land on your face. That's kind of what this seems like. Okay. There's the athletic part with the swing, but the rest of it, the landing, the absorption is not going to be fun. No, it's. And I don't know. I do not know. Anyway, let us, uh, let us ponder how much it would feel good to have your eardrum exploded on a (laughs) first slap. Which, by the way, I don't think I've ever slapped anyone in my entire life. I don't no. think I have. I, and that's not something that I'm waiting desperately for the chance to do. It's, I don't say that ruefully. You ever been punched? I have. Yeah. I was, I was in one fight in my life. It was for a stupid reason. I was in grade five. <laughs> I, someone said something mean to me. I said something mean back. We ended up in a fight. I took one punch. That was the end of my career. That was the end of my fighting <laughs> yeah. career. I realized that I was not cut out for fighting and said, from here on, I think I will try and solve my problems in a different way. <laughs> uh, it did not go well. You? Yeah. Yeah. The last <clears throat> hockey fight I was in, uh, guy ended up with three broken bones. In his hand? Yes. No. Yeah. There, there are people, there are people who, uh, I've often said are, uh, 
they, they try fighting by continue. They try to win the fight by smashing their jaw into the other guy's fist so many times <laughs> that he eventually gives up. Don, the Quebec major, major junior hockey league has said it is going to outlaw fighting. Um, this is not just their decision. The Quebec government gave money to all the teams during the pandemic at $2 million per team on the condition that fighting would be banned. And so you want to keep afloat, you take the money and now they're in the position where they have to follow through and say, we're going to get rid of fighting in the game. A lot of people around hockey have a lot of different opinions on whether this is a good move. Now, the Quebec Major Junior League has never been a really rough league. It's been a high skill finesse league. This would be a different story in Ontario or out West. But... Do you think this catches on? Do you think this is something that then other leagues now look at and go, well, if they did it, we're going to do it? Well, I guess there's a few things you'd want to look at. I mean, there is no fighting in, in junior hockey in Ontario uh, outside of the OHL. Right. Uh, the OHAR rules are that at one fight and you're banished from the game. And if you, I think it's still that way. If you do it in the last 10 minutes, you're out for the next game because I don't want stage fighting, right? Yeah. So, Guy fights his last ship, so he gets kicked out of the game, no harm, but it's the next game. So, yeah, well, I will tell you, though, <clears throat> my experience with uh, some tough guys is that the toughest guys come from Quebec and Saskatchewan. So, and Quebec have a league down there. It's a quasi-minor pro senior league. The senior league is insane. It, it, well, you described it as well as anybody could, yes. Yeah. And but the problem is they haven't got a feeder system much anymore because minor hockey is not rough. Uh, junior hockey is very little fighting, and so it would be interesting to see how many fights, fewer fights there are next year versus this year, because um, the NHL and the OHL rules. I think the OHL rules is still the same, but I could be challenged on that. You had to fight three times before you're kicked out of the game. I think the OHL tightened that up to two, and maybe Quebec did as well. So they're only eliminating a little bit of it. So it, you know, I don't think you can probably do a um, a proper gauge of it for a couple of years to see how many fewer fights there are in the Quebec League. But you know what? Kids don't fight anymore. There is going to be very there's very little fighting in the National Hockey League now. Fourth line guys can all play. They're not there to be enforcers. Uh, they're not there to protect Sidney Crosby and, and Steve Stamkos and Austin Matthews. You know, I mean, so it's it's finding its natural death. Um, and you know what? You can have that argument with a lot of people. I mean, it was part of the entertainment package, without question, when Trober, Probert was going to fight Domi. I mean, it was headlines in uh, all mm -hmm. kinds of newspapers. And that's gone. That's gone. There's a couple things here that I, I do wonder about. The first one is, so every year in the Memorial Cup, the Quebec League plays against, the, the winners of the Quebec League plays the champions of Ontario and, and out west along with the host. Which, so let's say it's in Ontario and there's three teams that are not from Quebec. If an Ontario team is playing against a Quebec team and an Ontario guy drops the gloves and starts wailing on the guy from Quebec, can, is he not allowed to fight back? Which is going to be a an interesting thing to sort out when you get to the Memorial Cup. They may have to ban fighting there entirely. It doesn't happen much there, but... Well, there are very little bit, and and, and I, I haven't read the rule, but I, I from what I assume is you can still fight. 
You're just out, out of the game if you fight. That's the punishment. Right. Like you're not out of the league. You but, just have to leave the game. So there can still be tough guys. But I assume, fight. That, yeah, I assume though that the, the, if, if this was to have no impact, the Quebec government is not going to be particularly happy considering what they're expecting. I'm interpreting this. And so, you know, we'll see. But the second part is, and this is, you know, th this may sound old school now and, and I, I don't know the threat of having to fight. I, I wonder to this day if it has any deterrent quality. If the, oh, yes, it does. So if you cheap shot a guy and you know there's a chance, even though fighting doesn't happen a lot, if you know that if I cheap shot someone, I may have to fight, does that have a deterrent effect? Well, it, it doesn't take that part of fighting out of the game, though. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a deterrent that you're out of the game. But if, if a big guy runs over one of our skilled guys and he's small, we'll have guys that will fight him. I mean, there'll still be the fight. That's not going to deter it. They're out of that game. They probably don't want to fight. But if a lughead runs over a guy and it's inappropriate, he'll probably have to answer the bell. I don't think you'll take that out of the game. They know they're going to miss part of the game, but that's, you know, you can't, you can't take advantage of the small, skilled guy who's never going to fight. So how long is it going to take a Quebec coach and I, I'm saying Quebec, not because I'm picking on them, because it's their league that has this rule. Sure. How long is it going to take a Quebec coach to send out their tough guy, if they have one, and say, let's say there's a Connor Bedard who's playing in that league, who's just killing us on the scoreboard. Go in the corner and I want you to drop the gloves and wail away on that guy and draw him into a fight to get him kicked out of the game. And if he doesn't fight, he's going to get hurt. And if he does fight, he gets kicked out of the game. Well, so what would likely happen is Connor... Connor Bedard would get, um, he would turtle or he'd cover up until one of his other guys got there. And that guy would be the third man in the fight because he has no choice. And then he would try and dummy and the he'll guy. And he get a suspension. Picking on Bedard. And if I'm coaching a team and that happens, the next ship, their best player is going to run into some problems. It's, yeah, you know what? I, I I'm not. I, it won't eliminate fighting though. There'll still be fighting. You're just going to be hoofed out of the game if you get in a fight. Yeah, and, and here's the thing is, as I said off the top, the Quebec League is not notorious for a lot of fights in Quebec major junior hockey. If you were to try and do this in the Western League, I think you would have a lot more of a difficult time. I, and there's not, honestly, there's, there has not been a lot of fights at Hamilton Bulldogs games. I think it was one game this year where there, where it was crazy and they had like five fights. Oh. But, but that's probably half the fights for the all, the all year in the one game. You know, an interesting league, if, um, well, the, the Quebec government bought them off. Right. What they did. Here's the money. Here's what you have to do for it. So I guess when you need the money that bad, you go, well, I guess we're banning fighting. And it sounds like it was a year or two in, in the making. They probably said by 23, 24, you've got to ban, you know, fighting. If you get in a fight, you're out of the game. And that's all they're doing, not banning fighting. You get in a fight, you're out for that game. But it'd be interesting if, if Manitoba, for example, did that or Saskatchewan did that and they're in, the, and they're in the Western Hockey League. One of their teams is in the Western Hockey League. So only in Regina could you not fight, you know, more than once. So I don't think you'd ever see it in the West. And the West aren't banning fighting anyway. Who are we kidding? 
Well, unless the Canadian Hockey League decides to try and make this consistent across, because the Canadian Hockey League is, for those who don't know, and I think most people would, but for those who don't, it's the umbrella group over Quebec Major Junior, Ontario Hockey League, and the Western Hockey League. So there, there is an umbrella organization. If they were to decide, if Dave Branch, who runs it, was to decide we're going to make this consistent, now he's got to get, I'm sure, the owners to buy into this, and I don't know that he would, out west, but you know what? Well, Who knows? For the uh, for the guys that follow junior hockey a little bit better than me, I, I didn't misspoke. I forgot. The uh, Quebec Junior League banned it because the, the Quebec government gave the teams that are actually in Quebec the $2 million, right. according to you. There are not just teams in Quebec. No, in, there's in Atlantic as well. In Atlantic Canada. So the whole league, so the... The guys in Atlantic Canada, their guys can't fight either, and they didn't get $2 million. I'm pretty sure the Quebec government didn't send them any money. I would be – well, the story says – and I'll have to look this up. It's a very good point that you raised because I wasn't even thinking about the Atlantic teams. Uh, the decision comes after the government provided $2 million per team to help during the pandemic. So perhaps what they did was just give a total lump sum to the league, which worked out to $2 million a team. I don't know. But you're right. It's a great point. I don't know that Quebec is paying for the St. John's Sea Dogs or the Halifax Mooseheads to... Yeah. Or maybe you can fight by. there. Maybe you can have two fights in the game there. Yeah, well... I think it's a league rule. I'm kidding. No, no. It's it's uh, it's an interesting one, though. I, we'll, we'll, we're going to see this year right off the bat, whether or next year right off the bat, whether it has any kind of impact. Where you get most of your fighting? Exhibition games. Well, exhibition games and end of the year when your team is out of it and whatever yeah. else. Um, yeah, we'll see. We will see. Don, and I don't know if you uh, got to see any of the end of the Leaf game where they went to an 18-person shootout. It just went on and on and on. Nobody, they, well, each would score and then nobody could score for five shooters and each would score and then nobody could sh- score. You a fan of the shootout? I think it's fun. I don't think it's a great way to determine... I, I, you're only fighting over one point at that time. And uh, I th- I'll tell you what I think would prevent shootouts. I, I don't mind them. I find them entertaining. Although I think I'd probably got a little bit bored after seven or eight of them. Like when you, not very often, they go that long. I mean, I, I, I saw the next day or that night that it was uh, Kerfoot scored on the yep. 19th or 18th, whatever yep. it was. <clears throat> what we do in our league, uh, thanks to a guy that's no longer involved in our league, is he brought it? He encouraged us to bring in the three-point system, because he said when you go to overtime, the winner gets two points and the loser gets one point. So you're giving out three points in every one of those games. Why don't we give three points to the winner? And there'll be a big. It'll probably end some games better because guys will be going. We've got to do something here. We're going to be losing three points. Mm-hmm. And I find it effective. I think if we're going to give three, so points, no points to a loser. No points to the loser. The team that wins gets three points. And there's more of an effort to catch up. And you don't see people sitting back with a tie hoping to get that one point, right? Because if you need the points, you may pull your goalie to get three points. Because one point's no good to you. And two points may be no good to you. You need all three. Yeah. We played uh, Hamilton Friday night and about uh, around six or seven minutes to go. Bernie Wax, by looked down, Hamels pulled their goalie. Well, they were down a couple, and they were in our end. And I got thinking, what's well, in it? But they needed the points, right? They needed a win. 
Now, they didn't get it, but, I mean, that was a strategical coaching move that if it works, you look like a genius. And really, if it doesn't work, who cares what you get because you get no points. Yeah, if you lose by two or you lose by four, who cares? That's right. doesn't matter. The shootout's interesting. It's part of the entertainment package, but I'll tell you, like, we dropped down, most leagues dropped down to three-on-three, which is fun, skilled guys. And, uh, I mean, that's a lot of fun. The shootout's a lot of fun. But our first game in Wentworth was in overtime, which was five on five because it's playoffs, and that's that's the best way to end a game. Well, uh, sure it is, and, and and I'll tell you why I hate the uh, the shootout. I hate the shootout. <laughs> I do. I hate the shootout because first of all, uh, more often than not, it's boring in my opinion. I mean, you get the odd great move, but more often than not, it's a guy coming in on the side, and he just they all try to do the same thing. But the bigger thing to me is. The penalty shot in hockey is supposed to be potentially the most, when a referee blows the whistle and points to center ice, it's supposed to be the most exciting thing you can possibly have in hockey. The penalty shot has become the most boring thing now because we've seen it five million times. And and now goalies have seen so many penalty shots and have been involved in so many penalty shots. If I'm a coach, now you tell me if you would be different, but if I'm a coach and a ref calls a penalty shot for my team, I want to decline it and take the two-minute power play instead because I got a way better chance of scoring with two minutes to try and figure things out than with a breakaway where a goalie has been seeing this nonstop and knows what you're probably going to do. Yeah, I don't disagree. And let me tell you then, based on your comments, it's very clear then where the shootout came from. We're trying to add some excitement to the game. You just said... The uh, penalty shot was the most exciting thing in hockey other than... Yeah, but like anything else, Ty you Dome do and somebody else too much. The out, outdoor games were fantastic until yeah. you did five a year or whatever the heck it became. When you overkill anything, what's great becomes just run mundane and run yeah, in the mill. A, yeah. and, and, I, and back to the penalty shot, totally not entirely related, but I've long thought that because now goalies have seen so many penalty shots with the shootout... They have such an advantage that if you get, if you are awarded a penalty shot, you should get the penalty shot. And if you don't score, then you should get a two minute power play because that the penalty shot is supposed to be because it's the most egregious penalty to prevent you from having a scoring opportunity. It's a special penalty. So you get both. You get both. If you don't score on the power, on the penalty shot, then you get your power play. That's what should happen. Now that's an interesting thought. Brad Benella, who uh, you, uh, you did a great story on, got 700 points in one game. 14 points in one night, yeah, which was crazy. We put him in a, in a shootout about three years ago. He went into the slot, wound up, and let a slap shot go and blew it by the guy. Everybody's going like, nobody does that. No. And he did it twice. Well, we can rotate him in again. He went down and did it again. The goalie's going like, are you kidding me? And why does, it, why does nobody do that? Because generally, watch the shootout. Because of the way the shootout goes, the goalie knows he can't pass to anybody. It's just him. So he comes way out of his net to cut down the angles and then backs up at the same speed as the player. So more often than not, what Benalo must have seen is that the goalie did not challenge him much, which left some of the net open. Because more often than not, you do that, you may drill him right in the throat and kill him, but it's not going into the net. He went in fast, which kind of throws goalies off too. If you go, I mean, he flew from center ice, he wound up and he was fine, just... Wound up and drilled it. And I'd think the goalie was like, this isn't how we do this. Yeah. Yeah. And once upon a time, imagine a penalty shot back in 1957 when Bobby Hull comes in for the first time and winds up and the goalie's not wearing a mask. 
you know, like you will know where the goalie was when that shot happened because you'll see the yellow spot on the ice. <laughs> like you'll know where, I mean, that, but now. It might even be a brown spot on the ice. <laughs> that, yeah, it could be. <laughs> but now they're so padded. It's like, okay, I'll come out and I'll challenge you. And if you want to wire one, fine, I'll, but I'll stop it. I just, to, there, there's one for your league for next year. Because I really do believe that. I think that a penalty shot is only called because it is the most, it's an egregious foul that stopped a scoring opportunity that was uniquely well, that's significant. That's, that's that's not entirely the case. Well, you've got a breakaway. Well, it's either you got a breakaway or you've put your hand on the puck to freeze it in the crease. Or you're pushing that off less than two minutes that ago. That could be. Okay. So, so I mean, that, that's a weak one. Yeah, but most of the other ones. But you're doing it so they can't score. You think. You're taking away yeah. a prime scoring opportunity. And if everybody has now seen all these penalty shots, uh, to me, you should get both. You should get both. Or let two guys go in. That would be interesting. Like it have a two-man penalty shot. That would be interesting. That you either can, you know what, we're, we're solving all the world's problems right now. That you either get to have the penalty shot and then a two-minute advantage or a two-on-zero penalty shot. So here's what you do. So you have two two guys go in. I hope somebody's writing this down. Mm-hmm. Um, you, let, uh, you have two penalty shots. And if nobody scored, now you send two guys in. Nobody scores. Those two times, you send three guys in. You know, this sounds a lot like back in the day when I was coaching my kid. I mean, a long, long, long time ago, and we would have tournaments. They probably still do this with kids' tournaments. Um, Take a guy off? Well, no, you play in overtime. You start with a one minute of five on five, and then you have a minute of four on four, and then three on three. But you can't play the same kids again until it's got down to one on one. So every kid on your team ends up having to, if the game goes that long, gets to play. Because five... Four, three, two, one. My math is right. Adds up to fifteen. So everybody will have had a turn. Yeah. Then you can start doing it. It's, it's. You know what? It's. There's another one. I mean, how exciting would it be, honestly, if you started NHL overtime games, not playoffs, not playoffs. Heaven forbid, playoffs. Just no, regular no. season. Five on five, and then Sheldon Keefe has to decide who his five guys are who are going to go first, and then your next four guys and your three guys. And then you get down to one-on-one. And like, you're, there's no way you're going to go to a shootout. Even if, even if the guys don't score one-on-one in the first shift, you're going to get it the second shift or the third shift because someone's going to change or fall down or yeah. something. And I'm telling you, we're, so we're solving all the problems here. Anyway, I got to run. Um, <laughs> Did it just in time. Yeah, just in time. Solved lots of problems right at the last minute. <laughs> Don Robertson, thanks for being here, as always. Thanks, Scott. It was fun this week. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.